Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading through the NYRB classics. I'm Kasia. I'm Dylan. Our book this week is The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner by James Hogg. It was originally published in 1824. The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner is a startling tale of murder and madness set in a time of troubles like our own. Robert Ringham is a religious fanatic, one of God's chosen, who believes himself free to disregard the strictures of morality, a view in which he is much encouraged by the elusive, peculiarly striking foreigner who becomes his dearest friend. Describing the seductive mutual dependence of these soulmates and the way, efficient at first, then increasingly intoxicated, they go about settling scores with their, and of course God's, enemies. James Hogg presents a powerful picture of evil in the world and in the heart and mind. And we are joined by Booker Prize winning author James Kelman. His most recent book is Keep Moving and No Questions, a short story collection. Welcome to the show. Uh, It's such an honor to have you on and to speak with you. Firstly, I just wanted to know a little bit about your connection to this book, The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, or maybe to James Hogg. Like, what was your first introduction to it? When did you first read it? I didn't read a novel until I would be uh, in my late 20s. Really. Oh, okay. Maybe maybe even, yeah, the late 20s. So sometime, it's easy for me in a way to date it. Be between something like, 1975 and 1980 to be between that period and probably that would be about 1975 or 76. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It couldn't be too early because it would have had an impression on my first collection of stories. Oh, really? I published this book in 1973 and I had my first stories finished uh, by the time I was 25. So... If I had known of Hogg, it would have influenced me in, in the use of language. Sure. Sure. So, what compelled you to pick up the book? I'm, I'm not really sure. I just, uh, like most uh, writers and readers, you just go, maybe especially <laughs> writers, you go where your interest takes you. Sure. Sure. So, so uh, I was led to Hogg one reason or another. I can't remember... I mean, the irony would be if it was through André Gide's uh, introduction to the 1947 issue, uh, publication issue. That would have been ironic, of course, because I, I'm, I'm Scottish and not very far from where Hogg was born and, born and raised, you know. So it's only about 30 miles away, or 40 or 50 miles, maybe. Sure. Uh, so, and I know that by 1982... I knew him well enough because I, I did a big long essay in Kafka and, and f- for my kind of dissertation when I, I went to university quite late when I was 30. And uh, the dissertation in Kafka, I used Hogg because Hogg, Hogg is, is very important within that tradition, whether you yeah. might call it the existentialist tradition. But it's, he's not known to be important in the existentialist edition really, yeah. because he's so marginalised. Yeah. Scottish literature is so marginalised that mm-hmm. people really, if they've heard of him, he's a, they regard him as a phenomenon. You know, They don't think of him as part of a, a real strong tradition in Scottish literature because they don't recognise Scotland's own literature as a thing in itself. 
They always think of as a kind of a, a what could you say, a, a dialectical, not a dialectical, a sort of a vernacular form of, of English literature and mm-hmm. they have of its own tradition, so, which is just a lie, actually. And it's really part of a kind of old imperialist tradition, really. It's what happens in imperialism is destroy the indigenous people uh, and you do that through language and culture. Yeah. Stamp out the literature and everything, you know. So that's, to that extent, Scotland, like Ireland, are quite classic. And you might say Scotland and Ireland are the first uh, countries that were colonised uh, or under the, the imperialist yoke in that way. So they changed our whole system. Uh, now, I wish I'd known more about Hawke when I was a younger person. It's quite a revolutionary, well, you know it when you've read it, it's revolutionary work. And yeah, it truly is. Ways, I mean, his, his treatment and regard for women and women's place in the tradition. I mean, who the hell was working in that way at that point? <laughs> you know, you're talking 100, and, even right back at like uh, 1800, he, he has women are prominent in all, all the explanatory places within the text and as it was in his life because his mother was a tradition bearer so he got all his songs and stories from his mother right uh, yeah. you will you know some of some of this so to just to give a little background for the listeners on who james hawk was and where he came from uh, he was born in 1770 in the scottish borders when his father went bankrupt he was forced to leave school at a young age uh, having hardly learned to read So he was largely self-educated, but as you were mentioning, he was really steeped in this rich storytelling tradition of ballads and folklore, uh, thanks to his mother and his grandfather, who was supposedly the last man to speak with fairies. He worked as a cowherd and a shepherd until moving to Edinburgh um, a little later in his 40s and started publishing stories and, and poems in Blackwood's magazine. But this This work, The Private Memoirs, is widely considered to be his masterpiece as well as a seminal work of Scottish literature, which is why I was kind of surprised that um, this wouldn't have been a book that you were given in school like growing up, that it wouldn't have been a set text where you were from. I just wonder what you make of his background as well, like him not having much of a formal education because his, his work is so rich linguistically. There's so much wordplay that one might assume he was extremely learned. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's even problematic, some of what you've said, you know, that's what gets said in, in some of the biographical detail. But in some of the other biographical detail, uh, it was a quite an advanced uh, scholar as a child, you know, up until the age of seven or eight when his father was a bankrupt. Sure. So he had to come out of school and uh, then lived on the hills as a, a boy shepherd and then and he continued as a shepherd through his years, as you know. So I really feel it's pretty dubious that he was illiterate uh, to that extent for, for very long. If you read his, uh, what, you know, like, for example, he has a great series of letters that he wrote when he was uh, 30. Uh, he travelled through the highlands and highlands and so on. Uh, similar to what Dr. Johnson did with James Boswell a bit earlier, but Hogg did it in a much kind of more interesting way. Because he was a shepherd, he was very, and he was skint, he had no dough, you know. 
So he was relying on kind of living with people when he, and he had letters from uh, Walter Scott to, to stay with local people. But he could go the way a, like a, a hillman or a, somebody used to the mountains and the hills would go. Yeah. I mean, as part of what we could talk about at some point uh, would be my own feeling about uh, the importance of hog to, to your own country, to the U.S., I feel that it should be really seminal. In order to get an understanding of the South, you really sure. it would be really important any to work out about, for example, that whole Appalachian backbone, you know, uh, right down to the East Coast, Carolina, and right through, in order to understand where ordinary people come from through the mountains and uh, what they call the Scotch-Irish, it would give you a, a new insight into uh, what Scotch-Irish really is or what it might be. James Hogg gives that. That background is so thorough within. There's, a, there's a, another one I would recommend to you uh, that you wrote earlier, which is uh, The Brownie of Bodsbeck. I, I, I don't know whether you've even maybe heard of it. It's called the Brownie of Bodsbeck. And it's written of the same period. And the Brownie occupies a kind of position like a a, superna- a spirit, a, a sprite, maybe being a, a kind of evil version of a, the leprechaun and Celtic kind of culture. And, and they were called Brownies. That was the name, but that becomes a play because, in fact, the Brownie who frightens the neighbourhood, turns out to be a covenanting Protestant on the run. Who's actually John Brown, his name John Brown. Like the same name as the, the guy who's uh, remains lying mouldering in a grave, John Brown. Uh, that was he, he was a covenanter in the, the late uh, uh, 17th century. So the background of people like that have ex- exactly the same background as these early Scots Irish and Scottish and Irish and separate between the three who would have gone and were forced off their land uh, throughout the 17th century, you know, uh, the time when they took over uh, James I and all. I won't go into all that stuff. But it's that type of history would be so important to get a grasp of that connection to the American South prior to, what could you say, maybe the Louisiana Purchase. Yeah. you know, that, that period, these periods are so kind of important and also uh, disguised, falsified. You know, uh, they re- really are falsified. <laughs> and it's pretty shocking and obvious when you get to read people like, like James Hogg. And it gives you a great understanding also of fundamentalism. Yes. Sure. It gives you a great understanding where the people who supported, uh, just say, uh, uh, Trump during that ill-fated venture, like, uh, <laughs> take over the White House. It gives you a great insight into the sort of uh, the, the the mentality of the psychology, because yeah. at a certain point you have to realise that the people, so many of these people are not dishonest, and they're not in bad faith. Yeah. They actually believe what what they're doing. So once you get once you get a grasp of, uh, say, Calvinist uh, Protestantism that comes through Hogg, 
and its relation to Roman Catholicism. It gives you an understanding of maybe the trouble in Ireland, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of Northern Irish politics, and, and it also gives you a, a real insight into the way that applies in American South, and not only within the white community, but within what we would call the African-American community. It gives, you, it gives you an insight into why uh, any kind of marginalised uh, grouping, whether it's racial or ethnic, will, will tend towards something like Presbyterianism, simply because there is no, uh, there is no mediation between the human being and his or her relationship to God. Yeah. There is no hierarchy. If it was African-American, there is no kind of a white upper-class person showing the road to Christianity, you know. There are, you know, you reach it on your own through the Bible and through your, your commitment to Jesus or, you know. So these are the questions why Hogg becomes... Uh, so so central, really, not only in Scotland, Ireland, and, and in England, but in most countries where there's been any forced immigration. For sure. So that, that would include, for example, Australia, parts of Africa, New Zealand, very much in Canada. Throughout, yeah. Um, so anyway. I thought it was interesting because most of the NYRB classics we talked about on our podcast are usually sort of early 20th century. Yeah. This was the uh, oldest book by far that we've gotten to talk about and feels one of, like one of the more modern uh, texts in this way that you're describing about like how it um, talks about how ideals and like the mind can be affected. And um, I will like to say when you're talking about sort of the fantastical aspects of it, I did really like the cover art that they chose for this one which is uh, The Ghost of the Flea by William Blake. It was a miniature painting he did that depicts like a scaly looking demon uh, looking yeah. at the bulk of human blood. And yeah. the demon is based on a real ghost that Blake reported to see during a seance. And the idea that this is a ghost of a flea itself is fascinating, I think, as a mirror to the book, seeing as it's like a, a small sucking creature that you don't notice until it is in her skin. And sort of how that uh, relates to you know, some of the specific characters, I would say, in the book. Uh, did you have any thoughts about what, why, uh, or how you felt like this worked as a choice for the book? I think it's, it's, a, it's a, a nice cover, you know. I mean, it, it's really interesting when you look at, you know, if you Google in just the, the different covers of uh, Justified Sinner over the last hundred years or so, it's extraordinary the way that the individual graphic artists or design people have have kind of taken uh, and the images that they use in order to try to uh, give some idea, not to represent anything, but to give you an idea of something about, about the novel itself, you know. And that ranges from a kind of Edgar Allan Poe or Robert Stevenson yeah. take on the, 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 dual, the dualism or and it ranges from there. It introduces thoughts of a uh, because it's so important in different ways uh, as its effect on writers. It's obviously a, such an importance on Poe. I mean, it's quite extraordinary that uh, and in Robert Louis Stevenson, but also in Bram Stoker, 
you know, some of the things that go yeah. on in vernacular, you, you realize, uh, you know, a lot of the, the detail that, you know, for example, uh, Dracula will be dead until the sun rises or something, you know, and you've got to get to the, you've got to deal with them before sun up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That type of thing where uh, when Robert Ringham is uh, buried, you know, like uh, where he languishes, uh, you don't want to give too much away in this talk about what goes on at the end of the novel. Right. Because, uh, I mean, James Hogg is always playing these kind of, he's always working in several layers of ambiguity and irony. You know, Mm -hmm. it's extraordinary what he does, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's part of it, even when you think, well, at least we know how the guy, the guy's grave, you know, uh, but you realise, because you you kind of get that idea, I think, at the beginning, uh, near to the beginning, when he, you know, you know when you, you get the kind of the, the justified sinner's own uh, take on the events, in other words, the, the eye voice, when it moves into the first person character. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You get, you realise then that uh, the guy's no more, and he won't be because it was a hundred years earlier. Right. You know? But it, but you realise later on in the novel you, you can't take anything for granted. You yeah. can't no. take. You know you. It's not only can you not take for granted the first person as a his account. You can't take for granted the editor's account of the first person. Right. <laughs> It's a very modern idea and conceit. Well, it's never been. I don't know where it's ever been done. Samuel sure. Beckett has not been capable of doing that. That was yeah. why when I did the essay on Kafka, you could see the only one who comes close to it, in my estimation, is Kafka. And that's only when he gets to the castle. He doesn't manage in the trial, but you can even see in the trial uh, when Joseph K is being taken to his execution. You have the two people walking in tandem who come to to escort him to his execution, and you and that immediately conjures up this vision of Robert Ringham, uh, with walking with his uh, doppelganger, you might call it, who's, who's looking over his shoulder at other people and giving big smiles. You know when he does that with the women. Yeah. Right. When, when the two uh, need towards the end, the two women. Typical Hulk characters. One woman, <laughs> one woman who is a kind of a, who's a very genteel lady, until you re- realize her background, you know. Again, how contemporary is because, and Hogg was never afraid of saying it, she had to work in a brothel. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you have to read it twice and go, excuse, excuse me, this is 1824. Why are people not talking about it? The novel where he gives such a great breakdown of Edinburgh. I don't know if you you know Edinburgh, but uh, you can actually you get that tremendous sense of uh, the the locations and you know and, and also up the up these closes in, in Edinburgh in, yeah. in old Edinburgh, you realise that well where the young students are going is, is another brothel after I was drinking then where there's all women. You know you. Where, where you, get, you don't get that anywhere. But again, yeah. and one of the women at the end uh, who's very important within the novel in terms of uh, uh, giving evidence and so on, I can't remember what, what her name is, 
but you move. It's Bell uh, Cather, I believe. What? Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. Now she, she, she's because she happens to have been a prostitute doesn't therefore indicate that she's going to be a character who is worthless. It's a very opposite. She's a very kind of yeah, uh, total in, kind of intellectual. She, she, she's a. She's a quite. She's a very strong character, you know. So you have her, and you have also the two of her and her, her old, uh, the old friend who's uh, Mrs. Logan. Yeah, she becomes uh, like married to Robert Ringham's uh, fat, uh, stepmother. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of his mistress at first, and then later. Yeah. Yeah. She be. Yeah. She. You. You couldn't get a more homely character than this. You would think she's like. Peggy and Charles Dickens, David Copperfield, or something. She's <laughs> like, uh, like she's a, she's the Earth Mother, you know. It's that kind of figure, except that the the way the church sees her, which is as this loose kind of harlot, you know. And of course, yeah. So yeah. the complexity of these characters, I think, are again one of the difficulties. I don't know how you two feel about this, but when you go into the criticism of Hogg. So much of it is kind of uh, scholarly, and it's good. But what's what's missing is the power, and it's good that you raised that about twentieth century like, feel to the to the novel and Hogg's work because you realise how contemporary it is in terms of things like every human being matters. It doesn't yeah. matter where they are. The woman that works in a brothel. The young, the young people who are one thing or another, you know, the, these these people really matter. No, I agree. One of the great successes of the book is that complexity because it would be so easy for a book that kind of satirizes um, the doctrine of predestination to become too simple or too yuck, yuck. Um, but he, he completely like evades any pitfall that may come from the different like genres that he's experimenting with and blending together. So I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that, like how he really skewers the danger of this idea that like certain people in society um, are elected to be saved and it should be plucked out. And he, he kind of plays with that, but he does it in a way um, which feels so sophisticated and does justice to everyone. Like yeah. there aren't any clear villains or or heroes. There's so much ambiguity. The ambiguity, it's, it's difficult to go, in, to go in too much without me re- referring to the contemporary Scottish history at that period. Sure. Uh, I mean, I can touch on it. I'll touch on it because some of it... Yeah, me too. Some of it goes beyond uh, the borders, you know. Up until the, you know that Scotland was a, a country up until 1603 and then it became part of the United Kingdom. And eventually yep. in 1707, uh, it lost its parliament. So it was no longer a political entity either. And it had just come out of the worst religious struggles during that 17th century, really. For a, for a period, the Protestants were in power during the time of Cromwell and so on, and they mm-hmm. executed the monarchy, but then the monarchy returned, and they returned as Roman Catholics. Uh, so they, they allowed, they were, the, 
what you might say, the, the English or the British, better to put it that way, they wanted a religion that was hierarchical. And the problem with Calvinism, for all its faults, is it's, it has that democratic basis, as I mentioned, in terms of down south. There is no mediation between God and a single human being. Mm -hmm. There is no, no curate or priest or minister or anyone who gets in the way of either the Bible or God or Jesus Christ in prayer and, and that single human being. Now, you can, you can probably infer from that that there's going to be difficulty in terms of if there's a monarchy or if there's a, a hierarchy in society, you know, because the people regard themselves, the only place that they are free is in the relationship to God, the one thing that they're free in. And that's the one thing they'll fight and die for, even the poorest of the poor. Yeah. The only thing that offers salvation is the only thing that is any positive thing in their life because they're so downtrodden. That's, that is the reality, as it is right now in some other societies and communities in the world. You know, Well, that was how it was in the 17th century in Scotland. And just before, uh, if you, the earlier novel was better in this side of it, it gives you that, what they call in uh, Scotland, the killing times which happened with the restoration of the monarchy, which was uh, Charles II. Uh, it shows you how bad our, uh, the United Kingdom is that Charles III is now, now in power. That's, yeah. It's, just, it's so ludicrous and contentious and disgusting, but that's how it is right now in the UK. But what happened, uh, like, uh, so 400 years ago, uh, nearly 500 years ago, when, when at the restoration of Charles II, there was pure uh, summer execution. You would you would only equate it with what our societies, UK and US, and that uh, sphere of interest would regard as what happens in the worst Islamic controlled countries or uh, ISIS or something. Yeah. And, uh, as we know, that that happens. It, it doesn't matter which religion it is. If it can be used by authorities in any way, they will damn well use it. So mm. it's happening at that point. But what happened at the end of the 17th century was that people were sickened. People were sickened by it. And when you move into the 18th century, there was elements of, that, of Calvinism that were very powerful, not only in Scotland, but in Holland and in Germany. You might say those three and in parts of France, maybe. Now, that that was something that people kind of clung on to because yeah. it had a philosophical basis. If either the, 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 you, you two have looked at kind of 18th century philosophy, but it comes to the fore in someone like Immanuel Kant or David Hume or Thomas Reed. These are, you might say, are, uh, Thomas Reed and also Adam Smith, you could say, and in Ireland it would be Francis Hutchison and... Uh, George Berkeley, these would be the very important ones. Berkeley, who was a bishop in Derry, uh, and uh, Francis Hutchison, who was uh, his father was a Presbyterian minister in Aberdeen, but he, he lived in Dublin. He was a founder of a university in Dublin. So that type of history becomes uh, really crucial. 
because that becomes the philosophy of the 18th century. Yeah. It leads into into quite extraordinary uh, uh, creativity later on because of the work by David Hume and Adam Smith. And it leads into things like uh, Clark Maxwell, who's the only person that Einstein uh, says influenced him. You know, so it leads, it becomes very kind of, and Kant, of course, Immanuel Kant. So people like Hegel and eventually also Karl Marx, you know, and Kierkegaard. That type of uh, way of looking at uh, what's possible for a human, for any human being. Uh, so it, it kind of uh, includes the skepticism of someone like René Descartes, but it also tries to introduce something that is like it. Not skeptical of Descartes, but we are finding uh, a place for for Christianity. So you always have that for us. We might regard it now as a sort of discrepancy or some kind of contradiction or something. But at that time, that was what people wanted. David Schumann had been regarded as like the Antichrist. Sure. Because his philosophy, uh, it's like Kafka in that sense, it's like K, the Lanceveer. Whether or not God exists is irrelevant, you know. Uh, he may exist, he may not. Or it may exist, it may not. It doesn't really matter because the world will continue the way it is. And you will find out that has extraordinary implications in terms of logic. <laughs> it takes you into things like... you can. From there, it becomes like predictable that somebody would come up with Gerdel's theorem. Well, Gerdel comes up with his theorem at the, at the end of the 19th century. That kind of stuff simply because people are interested in the logic of what it is to believe in God. Yeah. And what is necessary in order to believe in God, you know? And can you move, can you move, like, if we believe in miracles, is it possible to provide a verification process to say these miracles exist? Yeah. I love the fanaticism around the book and sort of that um, fantastic feeling and I love how it takes that and then moves it into something that's really terrifying and as you talk about how that this sort of religious um hurtful undertones kind of come in through that and it did remind me a lot of um you know Frankenstein and Dracula like you said these sort of like found books um about um you know it, it implies this is something that's actually happened and um, tries to make you believe in this idea. Like the book itself is recovered from the the grave of Robert Ringham. Uh, there, there, we should say that this book consists of a very interesting structure where there's the editor's narrative sort of providing this frame story where he recounts the events. And then he says, this is the manuscript that I found. And the manuscript is absolutely insane. <laughs> And it is, it is wild, it is terrifying, and it is fantastical in this way that it makes you sort of question the reality. And like you said, like the first person, what the most unreliable and maybe reliable narrator yeah. in book. <laughs> and um, yeah, what do you think is gained by the suggestion that what we're reading is something like true rather than fictional in this way when it comes to like the religious, the fantastical? I'll tell you something. You, you, you never... I don't know how many times you've read the novel, but you can Once never... Reading, this is my second time reading it. Yeah. yeah. Second time. See, when you get to the end, the ending, where yeah. Hogg, inter- Hogg introduces himself in, in a couple of different... We ways. have to talk about 
that. Yeah, yeah. It's very hard to get to the bottom of it. You, you find it's like this kind of maze, and you go, okay, here he is. Now, he's, here's the editor, and the editor introduces this letter to Blackwood Magazine, which, and I don't know whether you know about Edgar Allan Poe, but Edgar Allan Poe couldn't cope with Blackwood's magazine. It <laughs> <laughs> does this big spoof on it. I don't know whether you've ever read it. You should, because it used to drive Poe nuts. You know, when <laughs> Poe, Poe, of course, was in Ayrshire in Scotland, where where Hogg was, because he has uh, uh, like a, uh, adopter parents, or uh, that's where they were from. So Poe knew all about uh, not only Hogg, but he knew all about Blackwood's magazine and and all of these issues that used to drive him nuts. You know. And uh, anyways, it's to do again with with this kind of a uh, layer upon layer of irony. Okay, yeah. well here you have it's come to the end of the first person account. The guy, as you said, who is kind of nuts and crazy. So we get the end of that, and we think, okay, now we know. But there are the students. This letter to the Blackwoods magazine, which is supposed to be written in totally standard English, is written by James Hogg. Yes. A letter is it's signed J. Hogg, and it's written in standard English literary syntax. It felt very yeah. meta in like a modern, a modernist way. That's many years ahead of its time in that way. Yeah, but but what does he do after that though? That's that's just what you you have to. That, see, that's okay when that happens. Yeah. And the reason why you draw it, I drew attention to it in the, my essay on, uh, on Kafka and introduced him as well as it. So, the guy who's purportedly the person who edited the editor of the actual book, right? Mm-hmm. So, he's so intrigued by this letter by James Hogg that he gets his pal of his Lockhart, who's the son in law of Walter Scott, for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Right, and also the editor of a uh, Blackwoods magazine and Noctes Ambrosianae, which is a thing that we're involved with. So the two of them are so intrigued by the letter that they, they, they hire a couple of horses from Edinburgh and they ride down to try and get to the bottom of it by speaking, see if they can find this kind of couthy shepherd called Jay Hogg, <laughs> who also writes for Blackwoods magazine. So there's this market on, there's a, a fair on with the, everything goes on in a market in the country. So mm-hmm. they're looking around and they find this guy who's wearing this very important broad-brimmed blue bonnet. They find a shepherd wearing this, uh, this old shepherd and they say, right, and it's James Hogg. Yeah. So they find James Hogg. So out comes this guy Wearing the, the, the blue bonnet, broad brim blue bonnet, which yeah. is exactly the bonnet they find in the grave when uh, when when they, they open up to try and find the mummified hundred year old remains of this suicide supposedly Robert Ringham. Quote oh, well, suicide. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they find the blue bonnet. That's in the grave. Mm-hmm. And he always wearing the blue bonnet. Yeah, and, and the guy, the guy who who admits to writing, the editor of the whole thing, he also he also has a hankering for the blue bonnets. 
Okay, so now, now you have almost like a, this. This is where it becomes a really interesting thing in terms of uh, 18th century uh, Scottish common sense for the philosophical tradition. Yeah, the enlightenment sort of yeah. ideal. An insight into perception. Yes. This this actually it means that because the the, the power of that that part of the tradition, which was really Adam Smith who moves on David Hume's position, in order to know reality, and this actually takes the ground utterly from, from Descartes, in order to know reality, and Wittgenstein as a matter of fact, you, you have to have another human being with you. It yeah. takes two human beings through language to say what is and what isn't the case. Mm-hmm. And not only that, the actual very subtle thing is that each of these human beings knows each other pretty well, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So when you look at this person you know very well, you can see what they think of you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So say it's your, your partner, okay, and your partner goes, well, I don't always trust him or her. Or they're smiling in that particular way. I can't take that for granted. <laughs> <laughs> So what you get out of this is like, it's almost like a, it's not only three-dimensional. Yeah. This actually takes you into early 19th century, the early start of quantum theory. <laughs> You're actually talking about like a three or four, three, a three or four part way of seeing space. Sure. It's yeah, really this kind of should have so, been studying hog for tips. Yeah. About their research. <laughs> It's, it's so kind of, uh, it's, really, it's really exciting. But for me as a, as a young writer, when uh, Hogg introduces himself, well, he doesn't, he gets introduced and he speaks in, in Scottish, in ordinary Scottish language from that part. So he speaks in the voice of the guy who is uneducated, illiterate, and there's nothing intellectual to say. That's how he introduces himself. It's yeah. very, very important because that's how society treated him and in some areas still treat him in that way right now in the, the Anglo-American literary tradition. You still you still go, don't let us kid ourselves on. If you have taught in this, your country uh, about three years all in and each, each department of English is utterly dominated by the, the Anglo- you might call it upper upper class English. Okay. You can't deal with someone like Hogg as though he was worthy to lick, uh, I don't know, Charles Dickens' boots or some, something, you know, or, or Blake. I mean, it's ironic. The ironic thing about Blake, of course, would be that there'd be Blake himself being uh, a smashing great character, you know, but, uh, you know, coming from the, the English tradition, uh, you know, so that kind of thing for me, you go, yeah, yeah, Blake was great, you know, but it would have been nice if it had been somebody from Hogg's own tradition, you know. There was a lot of good visual artists around, as there sure. are now. So from that point of view, I mean, I would rather for Goya, uh, Goya's Dark Period or something like that. And, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, which, uh, you know, so, so, anyway, uh, but so that... So in a sense, the point I'm making is you can never quite get to the bottom of it. You yeah. can't. 
And you know, you know something, see that very important point when the two women are walking, right? And Robert Ringham's coming with his, the doppelganger devil figure. The yes. We've got to talk about Gil Martin. Yes. Hogg is very clear uh, when it's Mrs. Logan and, and Belle. Hogg is very clear that the, the evil one looks over his shoulder and the two women see the figure looking over his shoulder. So if there's a doppel doppelganger, there's an entity there. Yeah. So they're, they're not privy to that kind of nightmare illusion that Robert Ringham. Yeah, yeah exactly. Ringham, Ringham has. They, they're not seeing like his nightmares. They could see it they're, more. They're perceiving some, they're, they're, they're actually perceiving some kind of evil persona. Yeah. Right, right. So this Gil Martin character um who i think is just like after reading him i will never forget him i just yeah. think he's one of the greatest creations in yeah. literature period um but he convinces robert to commit a series of crimes with the aim of cutting down sinners uh protected as robert is as a member of the elect from damnation regardless of how gruesome crimes he, yeah. he makes um, I'm just wondering like what your take on him is and like what makes him so powerful and memorable a character you know I think some, some of what makes him memorable and powerful is because uh, he's so human yeah, yeah. now what you, you have to understand again someone who's coming from a, a lower part of society in the way that Hogg was Hogg was patronised and treated with contempt by most everybody around in the Lutterati. Now, he kind of, he does a wee spoof. Uh, Hogg does a spoof with this character, the editor of... Yeah. For all you know, that's Wordsworth. Wordsworth, yeah. Wordsworth goes to visit Hogg. Yeah. And, and Hogg makes, uh, the character mixes him up with as a known, there's another Wordsworth. And this other Wordsworth is a guy who's a horse dealer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there are these plays, plays on this. So when this editor comes and talks to Hogg at the fair at the end, Hogg says, well, he, he thinks he's a guy who's there to gather wool. Mm -hmm. And says, why is a wool gatherer asking these questions? But that, so it's kind of, it's almost, is that, who is that? Is that Wordsworth? But what's important is, that Hogg has been patronised, and that's the best he can hope for. Everywhere he goes, he's been treated with contempt. You know, uh, remember, you know, like you, you've read uh, the novel of mine. Remember how, like, when, when my novel was awarded the Booker Prize, I was published 22 years earlier than that. Mm. 22 oh, years yeah. earlier than that, my stories had been, the first collection had come out in, uh, up in Maine published in, uh, up in a small, a small press up in Maine, you know. Yeah. So, and in the interim period, I published all these stories and essays and one, two, three novels and so on. And yet, when the Booker Prize was awarded in 1994, I was described as an illiterate savage. <laughs> <laughs> and, also, and also in company. I was very used to being uh, patronised and treated with contempt in, in the actual company of mm. uh, upper middle class writers and so on. Now, Hogg experienced that all the time. 
Yeah. All the way through. This book is such a critique of that hierarchical placement because like Gil Martin um, speaks in this really florid kind of puffed up way. And that's part of like the sign of his duplicity of his evil but also like his his fake highness his fake highness right he's the prince of he's the peter the great like yeah oh i loved it when he thought he was peter um, the great figure but um actually he's just like the lowest most depraved agent of chaos that one could encounter and then Mm -hmm. the characters who speak in scott's dialect are the most rational like moral figures they're the ones that you can like actually relate to they see the most honest yes they 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 share their honest view of what's going on and they're the only like set same grounding force in the book so there's this reversal that's going on amidst so many other things yeah but you but remember this also that at the very at the very outset of of this there is no duality about uh, ringham because it's a deterioration when he first goes, do you remember the tennis match? Yes. Oh, I love the tennis match. <laughs> now, the tennis, the tennis match is quite clear, clearly Robert at that point. It's not Bill Martin there. It's Robert Ringham because he... But it's also, it's also the, the young fella who's been treated with such contempt by, by the, 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 the people he's with are all kind of... Uh, it's like Yale... They're all like Yale or Harvard or something, and uh, he's gone to some kind of a, the, I don't know, uh, some Christian type university down in the south where, you know, you, you they feel as though uh, some degree they've got it's not worth the paper it's written on if you move outside your state or, mm-hmm. you know, all these elements of uh, like uh, contempt that Robert's been been given simply because of who he is, where he comes from, before they know a thing about him. Sure. He's already responded to that when, when he's with them. And he's not going to let them uh, forget that he has every right to be there. And he keeps yeah. making reference. Go, you go to law and show me where I can't stand where I am. You know, so all of these things are to do with, they're not even subtle put downs, they're totally overt. He's been yeah. put down every move by these and remember this that they are they're the people who have assimilated to upper uh, to English control all of the people that his, his elder brother sees they all speak in standard English literary syntax yeah. they, walk, they walk off like Oxbridge or somewhere and they control the country they control yeah. the and everything, whatever, only like well, a few thousand, they control the country of maybe two million at that time, now five million, they still control it. So they they totally control it. Those who are local are, are can only aspire to be regarded as uh, clever servants. That's all they can possibly be. Now, one of the things about Hogg himself as a man, although he, so he knows what like it is to be treated and humiliated because he was humiliated all the time except or rather it was attempted to humiliate him but he was a much stronger character so it wasn't allowed that he he was not humiliated by them mm-hmm. he stood his ground and so on 
but that's what he experienced and he also was he was a man of emotion there's a very interesting thing that happens and he's aware of it himself he doesn't want to let loose his inner kind of uh, what could you say his fight back it happens in the letters there's a very interesting point where he's travelling through the highlands in a very kind of poor poor area and after about three or four days on the road travelling over hills and mountains there's no roads there there's mm-hmm. still aren't because billionaire landlord billionaire landlords still own our country so there are no roads down the west the west coast I don't know whether you know that yet. You can't, there isn't a road. So uh, right now, I'm talking, not like in 1824. Hogg wrote the letters in 1803 when he was travelling there. Now, at one point, he manages to get to uh, this uh, little house out in the the away miles. And the people in the house are gone, but there's two girls there who are servants. And... They only speak Gaelic up in the Highlands and Islands at that time. It was just they were people were Gaelic speakers. There were no, no English speakers. So how does he can only he can't speak Gaelic. Uh, so the girls bring him whiskey, and they bring him some other thing because that's what it's given to get him back. Uh, like it's a quite a good size of whiskey they give him, and he likes a drink. <laughs> <laughs> but. He all, but he also knows, like, I can't take any more just now. I need mm-hmm. to have food. I need food. And he completely loses his temper with the girls. It's a, really? Really, it's a really crucial thing. And he hates himself for doing it because it, it really comes in so... And they're, they're just like me, you, you, maybe between, say, 16 and 19 there. And all they've done is a, basically a, a good turn and... A, and and their menials or servants or whatever, but he treats them in this horrible way, really horrible. And his level of anger shocks himself. Yeah. Now he knows he knows what he's capable of. Remember, this is a man of the hills, uh, and he he has lived that way for much of his life. So mm-hmm. he will be a strong, strong man. Yeah. Now, any, you know, although he may not be taller, so he'll be a very, uh, you know, a very powerful, powerful male. He knows what he could do in any any fight. He knows what he would be capable of doing, and he will not let his his kind of emotions take over take over him. What what would he do? So there is that side of like uh, you get that in Paul. Uh, you get that in Robert Louis Stevenson with uh, Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. And you get that in James Hogg with Kilmartin. Uh, yeah. Before any of them. Uh, sure. That, that's it. So you know that the one who takes over is, the, is the, the human being who is slow to rile. And once they rile, they're basically not, they can't control themselves. Absolutely. And okay. I think about how... Once Gil Martin comes in, the senses of the character and his like trust of reality starts to dwindle. And, mm. you know, he's told like, oh, you killed this person. Oh, you killed that person. He has no memory of this. And um, it reminded me a little bit about um, 
Sammy from How Late Is It? How Late from your book. Well, yeah. That is sort of blind. And he's been told like, you know, he gets into a fight one night. He can't remember anything that goes on. And he sort of is stumbling through life trying to find his way and understand that reminded me a lot of, um, uh, you know, Robert going through this time where he's being absolutely tortured in this mm-hmm. way by Gil Martin and is losing his mind. Um, yeah. how, how do you see the story in this way as a reaction to like the enlightenment ideas of rationalism, empiricism, and how that falls apart when these things sort of happen? You know, it's, it's important to remember that it's set 100 years earlier, more than 100 yeah. years earlier. So it's set at the end of the 18th century. That's when uh, Justified Sinner is set. But yeah. there are still, amongst the ordinary population, and not only the ordinary population, uh, I know that Hogg, he, there were people who were kind of uh, Christian scholars who were trying to make cases to verify not only the existence of God, but the existence of miracles and so on. And things uh, to do with, for example, just like a, a literal reading of the Bible. Now, that, that things were literally the case. You know, like the way a fundamentalist would, and, uh, or like, like the way a fundamentalist reads any religious text or can, so that anything becomes possible within it, any spin becomes possible. So rationalism goes for nothing at, at, at these points. Rationalism's already been destroyed in that Scottish common sense tradition. It's not been destroyed, but it's, although it, it still it limps on in Anglo-American philosophy, it limps on just now simply because it's politically expedient. That's exactly what keeps people like Trump and all that going, uh, that kind of uh, behaviourist psychology and so on. It's obviously nonsense, but this is what suits American power. Uh, not only American power, but it suits any power structure. Mm-hmm. It's very, very clearly in ways that, for example, prove to me you're a human being. Prove it. Now that's the kind of thing that, in a in behavior, in a in a a very kind of extreme behaviorist setting, it cannot be proved. You cannot prove it. It's like the far right just now who want to deny things like, a, well, of any historical significance, such as any of the Holocaust or genocide. Genocide in Armenia, genocide in, in Europe, any of the any genocide or or what's happening to the Kurdish people in Turkey just now. Yeah, people are going. You know, they go for their, their holidays just now, and they can go to that European country we know as Israel, but they cannot go to that Middle Eastern country we know as Gaza. You know, there's all these things where you go, pardon, am I hearing properly here? What is this? Can't we, you know. The arguments that are based on, uh, so you get like, in one extreme, you've got rationalism, where the only reason we know something is true is within ourselves, so that's a Cartesian position or something. And you have that the, the other side of the coin, that behaviourist kind of thing. You know, neither of them is the case. Anyway, I kind of get lost in that, so... Mm-hmm. Come back, whatever the point was, or Cassie, or whatever point you can want to pick up. What the, but the one thing I can say is very important. Sorry, one thing very important. Look at what was going on throughout the 19th century. Now, whether that's going on 
with the, the great uh, writers from the, it could be from the Yiddish tradition, Jewish tradition. So you get people like Peretz and people like that, Alakim and uh, Sephirim, uh, one of the early kind of, these writers who are wanting to make the indigenous, the indigenous language, the language of the people, give it the right or justify it as a language. It is not a dialect of the, the imperialist force of the colonizer. It's an actual language. Yeah. Yeah. Going, you know, Hogg wasn't, uh, Hogg was not good at that area. It, it, this light lets you see when a, a so-called good ear that is tremendous for the local for language, but it only deals in stereotype when it comes to people from the Gaelic tradition. They cannot cope. So he does things that he uh, only, he can't, let's just say, he can't cope with Gaelic. Uh, whether Irish or Scottish, he cannot cope with it. And there is that distance from from his culture and Highland culture or Irish culture from the Gaelic culture. So, but he knows enough not to, to want to punish uh, Gaelic speakers. So yeah. he respects them. And, uh, but he doesn't respect uh, he doesn't respect the culture, but he respects the individuals. You might put it that way. But he cannot pick up in that that proper sense of language. And because of that, he's missing he, he misses the power of of uh, of the Gaelic language. And you see this quite often in his work. So he fails to pick up stuff out of his own tradition, which yeah. is Norse. He cannot pick up Norse, for example. So he's missing out on the Viking tradition, which where he came from was very strong. You know? Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, going back to what you were talking about a little bit earlier about like the influence of this book potentially on um, later works like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Yeah. And we see that, that um, doubling uh, in the character of Gil Martin and also in just like the doubling of the two brothers, Robert and George. Yeah. And in the editor's narrative versus the memoir, why do you think that that double theme runs throughout Scottish literature specifically? Well, I don't know whether, I, I think it's very straightforward because it's to do with those who assimilate and those who don't assimilate, those okay. who learn the language and those who retain the language. So what you, what you have within Scotland uh, from that period, 1603 and even earlier, you have this the set of the of the the power base as a English as English language. That's the power base from from 1603 onwards. 1603 because that's when the court moved down. James the sixth of Scotland becomes James the first of uh, Great Britain. That Great Britain comes into existence in 1603. Really, that's the United Kingdom, and James the first is the the son of Mary Queen of Scots and. It's quite straightforward in some ways. Robert, you could look at the name Robert. I've got, I have a brother who lives in, a, in New York City and his, one of his sons is a Robert. I have another relation who lives down in Dallas, Texas. One of his sons called Robert. What you'll find throughout the States and Canada and places, there's an awful lot of Scottish uh, young males called Robert. Mm. Robert the Bruce you know, it's a Scottish kind of uh, hero from the 14th century. 
When you have George, George is, is always English. George is a colonizer. George is an imperialist. One of uh, one of my uh, a relation of mine from Lewis, uh, from that a uh, Gaelic. Uh, that's a George Mackenzie. You know, so a George indicates that we will fight on behalf of the monarch, mm. of the British monarch. So, so that this is Hogg again. Hogg, Hogg, he's in this kind of strange position, Cassia. This may go along with some of what you're saying. His mind is is with. He wants to be a North Briton instead of Scotland. During the 18th century, they all wanted to be North Britons. Adam Smith and David Hume, all of them. They wanted Scotland to be part of Britain and to be treated as like a, an equal country, which it never obviously was, you know. But see, the only choice was that or being a North, a North Britain or to be Scottish was to be indigenous. To be indigenous was to mean you had no culture, no art, no aesthetics. You were not involved in philosophy. You were not involved in anything. Your culture was only fit for uh, dealing in the marketplace, telling funny jokes, singing funny songs, uh, but it was not the, the language that you would speak about in terms of the theology or any kind of uh, anything. So that type of uh, split in the Scottish I don't see it as a split. It's a political split. It's regarded as though it's a split in the psyche, and that's crap. It's not at all. You know, <laughs> because in the 16th century, and see, in the 16th century, the struggle then is between Latin. It's either because the language of the upper classes is Latin. Yeah. You know, so you have the, the great scholars, they can all go and speak with one another. Descartes and Montaigne can go to Scotland and speak to George Buchanan or Henderson or any of these of the 15th century, never mind the 16th century. They can go and speak with uh, Knox or people like that, the, the great theologians, you know. They can discuss philosophy and so on with Calvin. And they can do it, they can do that either in German and English, but especially in Latin. Latin, to that extent, is a language of of the, the upper classes, the people in control, though, you know, imperialists and so on. Yes. So, you know, there's always that struggle between authority and the people on the ground. That's yeah. why between uh, uh, he and Jewish, but the struggle against Jewish because it was ordinary people speaking it, the struggle to transform the, the, the Roman Catholic Bible and stop using Latin. That causes, because it means the hierarchy are no longer in control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate your answer to that question, because you can put it so powerfully and succinctly. Yeah. But just to kind of round out our discussion of the book, um, I just would like to know why, why you think this book is so important to Scottish literature. I mean, we've touched on it, um, but just kind of your final thoughts on its place kind of in the in the canon as Scottish literature as a distinct entity um, and why you think it's still relevant today. It's not, it's not, it's never going to be in the canon because the canon is, is simply standard English literary syntax. The shadow canon, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it's in my canon. <laughs> it, will never, it will never be in the canon, but 
And, and neither, so it's really important that you actually see the connection between that and other the language that of those who are in, in struggle against imperialism are involved in. You cannot talk about, for example, Hogg without and go to contemporary times without to, talking about Sarawiwa in Nigeria, Amos Chochuola in Nigeria. You, you cannot, it's it, you have to actually start to see things properly. You have to look at like where, where for example, is Faulkner coming from? When we're talking about Zora Huston, what is that tradition? This mm-hmm. is trouble about the imperial force, the colonization of human beings. It doesn't matter where the hell they are, whether they're in Scotland or in Ireland. It doesn't matter, but you look at what's happening right now in Africa. For example, the control that's being exercised basically by the US security, you know, between the, and the people are picking up the pieces, for example, are these mercenary kind of armies, Russia based, are fighting in Ukraine. You cannot, you cannot approach this without talking about the rights of indigenous people. Look at what's happened in your country, the Native Americans. Yeah. Look what's happening in Central America and in South America. Where these cultures are, are being driven, the, the people are being are being exterminated. The cultures are being wiped out. This is happening under our noses. It's not to do with whether this is anything to do with, in particular, Scottish literature. It's irrelevant. You have to see this in the, the, the context of imperialism right now. And if you want to talk about Scottish literature on the terms you are doing, it becomes a kind of neoliberal thing. It gives the idea somehow of taking on board the fact that everybody's everybody's a human being. Oh man, give us a break. That's not what it's about. It's about the rights to live your life. It's the right to not be exploited. It's the right to not have your country a no-go area because Lockheed Martin have taken it over of the big pharmaceuticals yeah. and companies. They've just made a spaceport in Scotland. Lockheed Martin. Oh, no. <laughs> right. They're going to they're going to be firing rockets. They're going to look they're offering all the young people up in Outer Hebrides and Shetland and Orkney. They're offering young people the chance to be to work for kind of Uber Eats. You know, they're able to go to Mars on a bike and sell fucking McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's very true. And I I think you do bring it back to a point that like, this is inherently a Scottish book, but its specificity is its universality in a way. The the struggle is is one and all. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because then you start to see where the links are. Then you start to understand why someone like Cog can be important to somebody, somebody, somebody from, for example, Sierra Leone. Or from Nigeria, you know, or from Kenya, where English has been thrust down our throat, or from Bahrain or someplace. Sure. You know, these are are really crucial to see. It's crucial to make that kind of link, you know, and see what it is. Thank you for talking about all that. Okay. That was fantastic. I want to just ask one more question about... um, Go. You said you'd already you'd already begun to form your kind of creative and artistic uh, project prior to reading Hogg, but after reading him in your late twenties, 
how do you think he he influenced you or did he influence you in kind of thinking about your work or in your in your creative writing um, after that? I don't know. I think it, there's a certain point where having been published for a while, uh, when I, you know, I don't really get into working working on a novel or seeing them in the context of people like oh, the existentialist edition coming through Kafka and Dostoevsky. Yeah. These two, I think, I began to see. Uh, it's not that they, they necessarily would have read uh, Hogg, but you realise that what he was doing is similar to what Goethe was doing with uh, that early work of his, uh, young Werther especially. When you, when you see that and you, you realise, think... There's a kind of, a, it's not to do with a pattern, it's to do with a context. I, I already saw myself in that context. Sure. And, and that's the way I was working because my, my my young heroes as a young writer were people like Camus and so on and, mm-hmm. and Dostoevsky. And, uh, you know, uh, I'd left behind maybe Kerouac. Uh, I was reading when I was about 16. But once you start to move on to others, uh, but it's part of that same kind of a uh, tradition, and you can move into uh, s- some smashing writers from your tradition. Uh, too many, too many to mention, I think, really. So, but by the time Hogg was uh, important in that way, I was already kind of enmeshed within that myself, and I was actually fighting, fighting ways out of it. I was no longer kind of using a uh, phonetic transcription. Uh, and my first novel were already past that, you know. I, although I do it and how late it was, I did it in my first collection of stories, see me, when I was maybe 24, 25. Uh, there's a story there that's written in phonetics, you know. Uh, so, but even there you start to realise that it's much more than phonetics. It's to do with syntax and rhythm. And once you get in syntax and rhythm, you start to pull things apart and see... This is not a, a dialect. This is to do. This is because this is, other languages are actually involved. You realise the the prevalence of Norse and Gaelic. It's like people who are maybe studying language in your country. They see uh, the links between African American usage and Irish Gaelic usage. So mm-hmm. you realise so many so many words people use, like even something like dig. You dig it. You realise well, then you discover it's Gaelic. It's actually Gaelic, you know. So yeah. you're, you're seeing some of the some of the stuff that's coming, but even in the phrasing, in the actual phrasing and the rhythm, uh, you realise that this this is a part of your own language. I know in my language, because my grandma was Gaelic speaker, so but I know there's also Viking and so on. There's Norse in the way I use language. We we use it expressly. Like we, for dust, we call it stour. We use and we call a house a house, and <laughs> you know we get we get uh, punished by by teachers because they say that that's a, a a slang usage of the English word house, and you you go well, it's not. It's actually Norse because they say house as well. Uh, <laughs> the only thing is they spell it H U I S. They don't spell it H W O S E, but it's not. <laughs> So we, and that's the thing about the female tradition as well, Cassia, in terms of tradition bearing, 
because because women are without access to power, when they have no access to power and no access to real authority, their knowledge is coming very much through generation by generation by generation. So inevitably, they become the tradition bearer. They, they're the ones who can sing the old songs. They're the ones who know the old language. They will right. come in with that. As whole, whole chats that, you know, that's why the, uh, women are so important within that tradition. You know, uh, the, the tradition of whole rights of. So, but that kind of tradition is part of what I felt. It's a 19th century tradition anyway. I mean, even people like Knut Hamsun, the great, they're all part of that tradition coming out of it. You know, it's like, it's, it's like a, a fight against imperialism, really. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a struggle against that in terms of culture and so on. There's people standing up and being able to uh, just assert their their own right as a human being, you know. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, as you say, you don't necessarily have to be cognizant of the tradition that you're walking in in order to walk in it. But it must be nice for you as a writer to like look at these other figures from from an area like where you grew up and and know that they were they were kind of doing it too and yeah. to have a kindred spirit it's in that really way. Good. But it's good when you when you you don't have to go and discover it. Unfortunately, generation upon generation have to discover it. No, yeah. you know because the the difficulty is that is not part of our education system. Yeah, that's why people. Well, that's the way it is. You know, when I was teaching down at UT, down, at, uh, down in Austin, the number of young uh, uh, students from Texas, and basically they were ashamed of how they spoke. They wanted to emulate. And even when I was teaching in California, everybody in the English department, the students I met, all wanted to speak the same. So what you're getting is there's like white middle-class academic students everywhere speaking the same and that's what they want so they're all assimilating and when they do that they're losing the richness of their own culture yeah it's it's obvious to me well texas and california the states i know best but in texas all these great cultures that were there go east texas it it didn't begin as this far right damn place you know (laughs) when you think about what was going on like uh, around that area uh, where Lucinda Williams sings about it. Uh, that, yeah. You know, if you if you go to around that area, and her dad, of course, was a, a poet. But if you go to that section of Louisiana, Cajun Territory and Zydeco Territory, you're in, uh, you're in a t- a t- uh, that whole area that is such an exciting intellectual tradition. Yeah, it's No wonder Creole... Any Af- any any African American nowadays from that tradition don't talk to them in that sense about slavery. That's a different. They're 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 from that uh, late nineteenth century, uh, late eighteenth century. So their allegiance was to France. They were going, why why does the French Revolution apply only to white people? Yeah, that's what was going on there. It was possible in Louisiana and East Texas to buy freedom. Slaves could buy their way out, they could buy freedom. That wasn't possible with the, the English, the Anglo-American tradition. Mm. So this, that type, that is a tradition that if people were aware of these traditions, where did the Cajun people came from? Well, they came from where my wife's people come from up in the East Coast, uh, 
in Newfoundland and the Maritimes because they were kicked out by the English imperialists. So they had to go somewhere. So they couldn't go back to France because they were away from France. So they ended up going to Louisiana and sell it. So the Acadian people become known as Cajun. Right. You know, you know what I mean? So all of all of those great links that, you know, you go and listen to the music there, you know, you're hearing obviously some of the greatest music. If you go like, uh, you could actually go from Lubbock to New Orleans, you know, just between these two, and you get this extraordinary kind of, where is all that music coming from? You know, you occasionally get in the literature, but not so much. You know, you're, you're far better to look at the, the music because it's the music of the people there. So you have yeah. all those tremendous, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, what you regard as the beginnings of American music. You know, whether, whether that's music going in, you know, I remember working on that, kind of another one of mine, which the idea was becoming a movie at the time. You're losing out in all of that tremendous tradition from, uh, what do you call it, uh, up in the Doc Watson kind of area, you know. Right down that place, you miss all of that. You miss all the connection with blues. You miss the connection with Mississippi. You miss, where did the fiddle? Hogg was a great fiddler. Yes, yeah, he was. All that fiddle tradition has come through that tradition that is right down again, the Appalachian tradition. Mm -hmm. you know, that whole tradition that is like, uh, it's only picked up on by by the, the what you might call the lower order people. Well, thank yeah. God we have yeah. music and poetry and artists to preserve that and yeah. to share it. Thank you included. You, you included, certainly. Um, thank you so, so much for talking okay. to us. It was a real honor and pleasure to hear your thoughts on these issues. Okay. That was, that was good. I've not been able to see Dylan because he's blind to it, masking. All I can see is this hand. <laughs> All I can see is this hand. Okay. <laughs> That was amazing. I know. Um, I loved how we talked about this, our oldest book so far. Yes. And yet it was really such a modern conversation about these ideas um, and about like literature and art and the power of language and the human spirit in the face of state apparatuses and power structures. It was so exciting. I, I will say we did sort of plan this book as sort of our Halloween episode. I know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, scary and startling in the more traditional sense. And yet our conversation got to what is actually scary in the world, which is... Uh, Good point. Imperialism. Uh, <laughs> genocide. Genocide. Like the, the, the actual things in the this world that are things. scary. And I think that was... Um, I'm really glad we got to that point because I think I think it enriches the book in in a large way to get to that sort of discussion. And who better on the planet to speak to than James Kelman about yeah. this book, which um, I read like ten years ago now for the first time, and reading it again, it was like reading a new book because there's so freaking much going on in this story. Yeah, you said they reacted so different to layers. it on this. Yeah, yeah. And I'm pretty sure if I read it again 10 years from now, I would feel similarly. I went to university in Scotland. I wanted to talk about this. And um, I read this book as a requirement. So when before I went... What class was it a requirement in? They um, made us take a one-credit course mm. on Scottish culture. 
<laughs> and this was one of the books, um, as well as like an Ian Rankin okay. like, murdery book and Alexander McCall Smith. Love it. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> um, and I really wish a writer like James Kelman would have been included in that. But I remember like getting this kind of, gen- I mean, this is a fantastic book. This is one of the best like books that I was assigned to read in school. Not that there was much competition, but this, even if there was, this would have been good. I remember getting over there and uh, it happened to be around the time that Kelman had released a new book and it was, you know, in the front of Waterstones or whatever. And I was like, that looks like an interesting title. And I picked it up and, you know, began to just like read his work. And it actually showed the sort of Scotland that I was in rather than this mythical place that Scotland is usually portrayed in what he would call the Anglo-American like culture. Mm -hmm. Anyways, like it was, I can't even explain how exciting and exhilarating it was to like read James Kelman in a bus shelter in like Akermukti to read like the real world and like real people on the page. That never, that never stops being exciting. And it's amazing how many books just don't do that, even though that's like the whole point of having them. But he also like was an, entry, an entry point for me for like all this other like school of Scott, like Tom Leonard, the poet. Yeah. So yeah, just like, we'll never stop being excited that we got to talk to him. This time of year. Well, that is our show. Thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Our theme music is composed by John Hookstra. Join us again in two weeks when we discuss The Word of the Speechless by Julio Ramon Riviero. Good job. I think you said that right. Um, Bye.